0: Bethany Baptist Church this morning, and up here with me are Nick and Iris Hong. They are missionaries that we have been sponsoring for the last nine years in East Asia, And actually, our relationship goes back even further than that, because uh, when I was at Greenfield Baptist Church in Edmonton, they were missionaries that we sponsored at the church that I was at in Edmonton as well. And so it's wonderful to have you guys with us this morning. And I found out right before the service, I was talking to them about how after the service today, I have to go to Faith Baptist Church in Vancouver and preach there in the afternoon, and they told me that they're going to Faith Baptist Church in the afternoon (laughs) as well. So we'll be kind of following each other around a bit today. Um... Uh, Nick and Iris, could you just uh, share with us some of your ministries that you are doing in East Asia today?
1: Thank you. Thank you, uh, Pastor Steph. And uh, first of all, good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you so much to give us this privilege to share about our ministry, what God has done on the field today. And uh, first of all, thank you so much for your prayers. In the past four years, without your prayers, we could not serve on the field in Asia Uh, I will not tell you the name of the country, but you will know it right away. It's the largest country in the world, (laughs) population-wise, 1.3 billion population. And uh, four years ago, we entered to the country. And uh, the first target group that we serve is the university student ministries. We outreach to the university student in their campuses and organize summer camps for them and try to lead them to Christian faith Mm -hmm. through all the activities. And we thank God. Some of the students they became Christians, and through the ministries, and as well as they not only follow Jesus, but some of them even commit their life for full-time ministries. Mm-hmm. We thank God. Yeah. After that is the first two years of our ministry. Uh, after two years, God widened the door for us to serve on the field. We partnered with a state church, and uh, what I became one of the pastors uh, on the uh, in the church. And uh, at the beginning, about two years ago, 350 to 400 people in the church. Mm-hmm. Today, almost 1,000. Wow. Yeah. yeah. We thank God that he, bring, he brought people into the church, and also not, by, not only by number, but we also involved in a lot of our pastoral ministry, discipleship, fellowship groups, and we also lead up, lead up some uh, outreach ministry out of, out of the church. And uh, I would say it is a miracle because of your prayers. Mm-hmm. Why? Because as a foreign missionary, it's impossible to, do, to have any religious activities in the country. But God allows. And we outreach to some uh, children. Uh, they are called by left-behind children. That Who are they? That they, Usually the, the couples, they, they, they get married. They have a child in a village. but it's difficult to find a job in the village. So the, the, the parents go to the city to find a job, to work in their long term. They left, they separate from their child a long time. Maybe once a year they will go back, during the Chinese New Year, they will go back to the village and visit the child. So those children, they, when they grow up, they have really, really lack of love, mm-hmm. low self-esteem, and don't know the meaning of life. And uh, we had the opportunity to outwish them and share Jesus' love with them. We, our, yeah, yeah. Iris, would
0: you be able to share us a testimony of uh, yes, yeah. Yeah, someone?
2: Uh, yes. Um, uh, one summer, we uh, organized a summer camp for the Left Behind children. And uh, a, a little boy, he has his, uh, committed his life in the Lord uh, at the summer camp. And we let him know that he can talk to our Lord Jesus Christ anytime. Um, then he made a prayer he made a long prayer after that I asked him oh, what did you ask for from Jesus what did you tell Jesus then he whispered to me that um, he misses his parents very much he hasn't seen them for a long time he does not know where they are at the camp Nick and myself hug him but he told me that he never hugged by his own parents and he longed for a hug by his own parents. He asked Jesus to protect his parents, to take care of his parents, to love his parents, and bring his parents back home. This is a prayer from this little boy.
0: What would you say is probably some of the toughest parts of being a
1: missionary where Mm -hmm. you are? I think uh, uh, for the ministry, uh, one thing is that we need God's wisdom Mm -hmm. to discern what we we should do or we should not do Mm -hmm. for the benefit of the long-term ministries because uh because of the sensitivity of the religions in that country uh we uh we need we need god's guidance Mm -hmm. for us that we decide okay we partner with a state church and uh, what kind of ministry that we of course we want to outwish more people Mm -hmm. but also we need to be careful that not to uh, cross the the, what some of the restrictions of the government? We need that is the most challenging things that we need uh, for your prayers as well. Yeah. And also, but physically, you may heard about some um, pollution problem in the country. And uh, yeah, and uh, um, uh, and our wish to the minority group is uh, also a sensitive area Pray. of the Pray. ministries. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Iris, do you guys have prayer cards and things here with you today? Yes, I bring them. Okay, yeah. so if people want to connect with you after the service, kind of in the uh, the foyer there, uh, to pray with you, to partner with you, even beyond just as a church, but individually, you guys have information that you could pass on yes. to them.
1: Sure, sure. Yes. Sure. Please pray for more NAB missionaries who come to join us. We need co-workers. Yes. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank yeah, you. let me pray for you guys right now. And then after I pray for them, we'll take our morning offering, and then we actually have a video that's been put together about your ministry. Yes. 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 Okay, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for Nick and Iris, and I just thank you so much for their enthusiasm, for their love for you, and for the growth that we are hearing about people coming to Lord to, to the Lord in China and the growth of the church there, God. We celebrate and we know that all around the world we are partners in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I thank you, God, for how we can minister to one another. Help us, Lord, to remember to continue to pray for Nick and Iris. And Lord, help us to listen to you as well, as you may be calling some of us, even here today, into ministry that is beyond our borders, beyond our country. And I just pray, God, that you will continue to to speak to us, to convict us, and that we will have humble hearts, Lord, to listen to you and to obey and to go where you've called us to go. Protect them, Lord Jesus, and continue to bless them. In Jesus' name, amen much. We're going to dismiss the children at this time. They can head out for their uh, uh, children's time. Yep, go on out. Those of you that may just want a little bit of a taste of some Uh, missions work and to see kind of some of the different work that happens on some of our fields. Uh, I am actually going to be taking a team in January to Cameroon. That team's already been formed, but we are also going to be leading another team next year that I'm going to be taking to Brazil, and that's going to be in June. If you are interested at all in seeing some of our ministry down at Chain of Love, uh, just come talk to me and we'll start um, beginning to form that team as well. And as we get closer to it in the fall and that we'll start uh, letting you know more information about the Brazil team if you would like to join us for that trip. Well, I know a a retired guy that has been in school for a number of years, but behind his back and, and often even sometimes to his face, he has told me this, his peers often belittle the fact that he continues to go to school. And continues to educate himself. People often say to him, when are you ever going to finish? When are you ever going to get a degree? Or you already have one degree. Why do you want to get another one? His reply, which seems to confuse people quite often, is the fact that he just likes to learn. He just likes to go to school. He's not necessarily trying to get anything out of it. He just enjoys Worshiping God with his mind. Uh, This idea of education, however, has almost been adopted by every single age group today. The idea of education is simply there to get something out of it. High school students, and I have to admit, I know this when I was in high school as well, when you learn something that you don't see the immediate application for, you are always saying, why do I have to learn this stuff? I'm not going to use it anyway. Uh, Parents and university students often see education also, especially a university education, as simply a, a means to an end. You go to school to get a job. Why do you get a job? You get a job to make money. Why do you make money? You make money to pay your debts for going to school. That's kind of how many of us live. Making money to pay for schooling to help us get a job to make money. And with this kind of idea, then, degrees in things like the arts seem to be fairly silly. Uh, Why should I bother learning about philosophy and literature and sociology and history, religion, if these disciplines aren't going to help me make money? And so we have a lot of people... Who are fairly proficient as experts in some kind of area or task, but we have few wise people in our culture who have reflected deeply on life. It's due to a what's in it for me that dominates our education. I know a guy who calls his mother every time he wants or needs more money. Now, this guy is in his late 40s. So I'll let you guess as to why somebody in their late 40s is still calling their mommy all the time for money. Unfortunately, the mom in this situation continues to give the person money. Sometimes months will go by and he won't call, he will completely seem to drop off the face of the earth, he doesn't call on birthdays, doesn't call on anniversaries, but as soon as he needs money, all of a sudden mom hears from him and he tells his mom how much he loves her and mom once again wires him more money. What's in it for me dominates his relationship with his mom. I know a group of friends who go out after church every Sunday to evaluate the service like it's an episode of Canadian Idol. I like this. I didn't like that. This person got a 6 out of 10. This person got a 3 out of 10. That person got a 9 out of 10. They don't see worship as about offering and giving, but about taking and getting What's in it for me dominates the way they see church. The other week, a guy came to me and was complaining about his wife and seriously considering if he should leave her. According to him, she's lazy, she's critical, she keeps the house a mess, and she doesn't put out in the bedroom. And so he is seriously thinking if he should just walk away from it all. In this particular relationship, they had children as well, so he'd be walking away from the children also. What's in it for me dominates his view of marriage. Dominates his view of what it means to be a father. One of the signs of this what's in it for me mentality is a culture that continually doesn't feel fulfilled. We are perpetually unfulfilled people. We don't feel fulfilled in our jobs. We don't feel fulfilled in our marriages. We don't feel fulfilled with our education. We don't feel fulfilled in our churches. We don't feel fulfilled in our communities. We don't feel fulfilled in our relationship with God. And Where poor societies struggle with issues like malnutrition, we have an epidemic in our society of struggling with depression. We're an unfulfilled people, ironically, with everything that we have. What we don't realize is how this not feeling fulfilled is a very modern phenomenon. Our psychological struggles are not a lot of the same struggles that many of our forefathers and mothers struggled with. Most people in most societies in most periods of history simply stayed in their same jobs for their entire lives, stayed in their same marriages in their same communities, in their same churches, through the good and the bad and the beautiful and the ugly, not only for their entire lives, but also for generations. Faithfulness was considered a higher virtue than fulfillment. I would argue that faithfulness is actually a more biblical value than fulfillment also. We need to understand this about societies. If we're going to have an understanding of even what happened during the Reformation about 500 years ago. To sort of get into the mindset of the disruption of the Reformation. We have a hard time projecting ourselves back into that because we think today, which is very individual, we have no problem just walking away and... Um, rebelling against anything we disagree with, but that was such a foreign idea 500 years ago during the Protestant Reformation. Back then, to leave one's job or one's church or one's kids or one's spouse or one's community was next to heresy. One of the Catholic Church's arguments against the Reformation was... How this, if the reformers pursued in it, would splinter the church and society as well. And in that sense, the Catholics correctly foresaw the negative ramifications of Reformation as right following the Reformation followed the Hundred Years' War of Christians killing each other, followed by more wars, followed by persecution, which eventually caused most of Europe, as we see it today, to reject Christianity altogether. To say this doesn't work for society and moved them to a much more secular outlook on life. They just saw Christianity as not working. It just continued to fight and to splinter and to split to the point where today we have 40,000 plus Denominations. So for what good the Reformation brought, the negative was certainly the disruption of society and the real breakdown of the unity of the church. All of it, well maybe not all of it, but a good portion of it, especially once Protestants began fighting amongst Protestants and splintering and splintering, all in the name of what's in it me. It's for this reason that we find Jesus fairly reluctant when it comes to miracles in the Bible. Jesus was not a traveling magician. Many people thought of him that way, but that was not his role, nor did he want to be seen that way. Jesus did not want miracles to be come central to his ministry. Because Jesus understood how quickly a what's in it for me mentality can even come into our faith. And he didn't want to encourage that kind of a faith. Jesus knew that if he performed signs and wonders, people would flock to him. That was just natural. He knew that would happen. But at what cost? And at what kind of commitment? I remember when I was in Edmonton, I used to volunteer quite often in the inner city preaching at some of the missions there. And quite often I would talk with some of the people before or after the service. And I remember in particular one conversation with one guy who told me specifically that he had became a Christian so that he could get the free sandwiches and coffee after the service. What's in it for me? Missionaries sometimes refer to this as rice Christians. Uh, people that become Christians in order to get the goods and the services that the missionaries have to offer. Missionaries are continuing to think through some of this and there's been a lot of changes in missions and the approach to missions to discourage this kind of Christianity. Jesus was not one who came to flaunt his powers, to somehow appeal to people's what's in it for me. And it's in light of that, that I want to read today's story. Because I think it will help us see the underlying implications of the story today. We've been working through the Gospel of John. Today we are in John chapter 4, and we are going to look at verses 43 through to fifty-four. At the end of two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. Yet the Galilees welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, and they had seen everything that Jesus had done. As he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judah to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was about to die. Jesus asked, Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs? And wonders, the official pleaded, Lord, please come down now before my little boy dies. Then Jesus told him, go back home. Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. While the man was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. And he asked them when the boy had begun to get better. And they replied, yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father had realized that this was the very time Jesus has told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judah. The first miraculous sign being the water turned into wine. As we read this story, yes, Jesus performed the miracle by the end of the story. One of the things I like about this story too is I I like the scientific rigor of the man who asked when the boy began to get better. And he is given the specifics that at one o'clock yesterday, the boy's fever suddenly disappeared, and the father, we read, realized that this was the exact time Jesus said, your son will be healed. See, the man wanted to know if Jesus had really done this. He didn't see it as improper to investigate I know that I annoy some people with my skeptical mind particularly people that come running to me and they're all excited about some email or newsletter that they've gotten about uh, reports of people being raised from the dead in Africa. Or they heard from a friend who heard from a friend who heard from a lady on a bus that some doctor in American um, hospital became a Christian because he watched somebody's arm that was no longer there grow back suddenly and he became a Christian. And everybody now is flocking to this hospital. So I, I get stories like this all the time. And, and, and I annoy people because my instant reaction isn't to jump around and praise Jesus, but to say things like, well... Has has this been verified? Um, what are your sources? Which hospital did this happen at? What was the name of the doctor? Has he been interviewed? Has anybody collaborated this story? Is there any other possible explanation of what may have happened? And I don't see that as a lack of faith. I just see that as a desire not to be suckered because there is a lot of fake news healing stories out there. And so we see in... This guy here, a willingness to investigate. Does this really happen? It's not a non-belief in miracles. I believe in miracles. I believe they still happen today. I remember when I was in grade eight, my dad had chronic back pains and had somebody lay hands on my my dad's back, pray for him, and my dad was miraculously healed. Completely. He hasn't had issues since. But we need to make sure that we look into things, because we also know that God often doesn't do that. Now, when we read this story, as can happen, miracles can distract us. They can distract us from some of the more important issues in life, And in the story. And this is what happens when we read this story. When we read the story, we're excited by the miracle. And so we jump to the miracle. We jump to the end. That's what we see. But we don't notice the details leading up to it. The kinds of things that Jesus says. The kinds of things we see the crowd doing. And we have to slow down and investigate. And look at the details. And we will realize when we do that uh, Jesus's particular reluctance around performing miracles. The passage actually starts off on a fairly negative note. It says that after traveling through the Samaritan territory, that is Gentile territory. so after traveling through Gentile territory Jesus comes home to his roots, to his own people. But as Jesus comes home to his own people, we see a mighty contrast between the foreigners, the Gentiles, who eagerly came to Jesus after the woman at the well came and told her people about Jesus. They came flocking to Jesus, wanting to hear Jesus, teach Jesus, stayed with them for some more days to his own people, which begins with Jesus saying that a prophet is not honored in his hometown. Kind of a negative start. Jesus obviously very highly honored among the Samaritans, but now in his hometown, he's not honored. But then right after we we read this, there's a strange contradiction, because right after we read, a prophet is not honored in his hometown, then we, we read, yet The Galileans welcomed him. So what's going on? Why is it saying that Jesus is not welcomed in his hometown, and then it's now saying, and yet he is welcomed? Why even throw that in there if he is welcomed? Well, as you read further in the story, the seeming contradiction unfolds. Because it says that the Galileans welcomed him, And it tells us why. The Galileans welcomed him for they had seen everything Jesus did. In particular, one of the things they had seen Jesus do was he had turned water into wine. Now who doesn't want the guy who brings beer to the party to come back? Uh, They saw what Jesus did. He's the wine guy. He is the one who kept the party going. Like the God Bacchus, he is the God of wine who knows how to keep the vats flowing. Who doesn't want a guy like that around? And so they welcomed Jesus, not necessarily because he was a prophet and because of his message, but they welcomed Jesus back because they knew what he could do. They had seen what he could do. In particular, they could see his first sign, which was water into wine. It's also interesting that after Jesus turned water into wine back in John chapter 2, we read, because of the miraculous sign Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. And right here, people say, see, look at that. How could you say miracles are not a good thing? Look at what they're doing. Many people are trusting Jesus because of the sign that he did. But I have to say, wait a minute, you got to keep reading Don't stop too quickly. Sometimes it would help if we erased all the little numbers by our verses in the Bible because it causes us to stop and not read the whole flow of thought. Because the very next verse, right after this one, says, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him what people are really like. Interesting. Jesus turned water into wine. It says people loved it. They came to Jesus and they trusted him. But then the very next words is, after these people trusted Jesus, Jesus didn't trust them. He knew all about people. He knew the kind of trust they were putting into him. A what's in it for me kind of trust. Yeah, I'll trust you, Jesus. You bring the wine to the party. But the kind of trust in Jesus, the water into wine miracle produced, was not the kind of trust that Jesus was looking for. And so Jesus reluctantly performs these miracles. We're going to see the same thing when we get to John chapter 6. Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000. After he miraculously feeds the 5,000, people trust in him. It actually says that the people then sought out Jesus and they tried to make Jesus king by force. Oh, they trusted him. And what we're going to see as we uh, explore that story in a few weeks is that Jesus didn't say, great, now I can start my mega church. Jesus then had to weed the crowd out In fact, he significantly weeded the crowd from 5,000 all the way down to there was only 12 left. Because when he started to tell them what it meant to really trust him, it said many left and no longer followed Jesus. They trusted Jesus when they could have their bellies filled. Which is a different kind of trust than surrendering one's life. And so here Jesus comes back to his home, land with his own people. He knows that a prophet is not really welcome among these people, and yet they are flocking to see him. Jesus doesn't quite trust them because he knows the reason they are coming to see him is not because of himself, but because of the miracles he can do. And so he comes into the crowd knowing this and sure enough it doesn't take long and someone asks for a miracle. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judah to Galilee, a governor went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal a son who was about to die. It didn't take Jesus long to come back to his homeland, and people were flocking to him because they had seen what he had done, and they came flocking to him for another miracle. Now, you may think this is a a very legitimate request, however. I mean, this is not like Jesus' mother asking Jesus to do something about the wine at a party. This is a guy who's coming to Jesus because his son is about to die. Uh, That's kind of not in the same category. Certainly, it's a a much better request. But even at this, notice Jesus' response. It's not, oh, I can't believe this. Your son's about to die. May he be healed. Jesus' immediate response is, will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? It's interesting that both the first sign and the second sign in the Gospel of John are performed by Jesus very reluctantly. When Jesus' mother asks him to turn the water into wine, Jesus at first essentially says, My time has not come. Don't involve me in this. I'm not here to be a performing dog, a magician. Here when this man comes to ask Jesus about his own dying son, Jesus' response is somewhat similar. Is this all I'm good for? Are you only going to believe in me if I do stuff for you? If I perform signs and wonders? Now, as the story unfolds, Jesus does heal the man's son. He does give in. The story does end by saying this was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in, in Galilee. There's two signs the water to wine and the second sign of the healing of the governor's son but both signs done with reluctance both miracles producing faith but a faith of of sorts but is it a faith in jesus Or is it a faith in the miracle worker to do stuff for us? What's in it for me? Wine, food, healing, comfort, fulfillment. The greatest commandments, love God. Okay, but uh, what's he going to do for me? Love others. Sure, I'll do that, but what do I get out of it? It's important to forgive because forgiveness is good for you, we will say. And it's true. Forgiveness really is good for you. Forgiving is better for your personal health, but is that the main reason we do it? Are we motivated by love for God and others or simply for the personal benefits? And the reason this is so important is because, if we get these mixed up, what happens when the personal benefits aren't there? When I go and visit dying people in the hospital, this week I went and visited Katie Blessing, who's probably only got a few more days to live when I go and visit dying people in the hospital and I read scripture and I pray with them, guess what? They die. And turning the other cheek really hurts. I don't know if you've tried it. It hurts. And there's no guarantee that in turning the other cheek, it's going to reform the person who hit you. Sometimes doing the right thing, like running into a fire to rescue people, ends up giving you chronic breathing problems for the rest of your life. Staying behind to help people infected by the plague sometimes causes you to be infected also. Working in a hospital in a war zone by kids who've been bloodied up by war doesn't guarantee that your hospital won't get hit by a rocket. There's no guarantee about these things. Richard Beck, a a pastor who works in the prison system, tells a story in one of his books of a prisoner who converted to Christianity. And after he converted to Christianity, the prison gang that he was involved in beat him so badly that one of his eyes fell out. He said there's only two ways in prison, to get into a gang and to get out of a gang. And that's to be beaten to a pulp. The consequences of him coming to Christ were his being beaten to a pulp. Yes, Jesus can do miracles, but as we all know, more often than not, he doesn't. And if our faith in Jesus is only a faith that is grounded in, what can he do for me? It's going to fall fairly quickly when he doesn't seem to come through the way we would like him to. And even when he did do miracles in the New Testament, we recognize that Jesus never did miracles merely to do miracles. They always, like the Old Testament, were miracles to point beyond themselves. They were always miracles to point to something deeper. Miracles were never an end in themselves. Miracles always were to point something beyond themselves. The water into wine, Jesus is the one who has come to make the old covenant into a new covenant. The healing of this boy, is Jesus is the one who is the author of life over death. He's the one of the resurrection. They always were at a point beyond them. They were never ends in themselves. The primary reason for worshiping Jesus cannot be what's in it for me. What do I get out of this? Look at the Old Testament story of Job. It's interesting in our human way of reading the Bible, we even read the story of Job a little bit with a what do we get out of it mentality. And so we read the story of Job and say, okay, well, what's the point of the story of Job? Um, It must be that through all of Job's suffering, God helped him mature. And God helped him become more faithful in his faith. But when we actually read the book of Job, we don't get any of that from the book of Job. Nowhere in the book of Job does it say that that was the reason God did this, was to help Job mature. Nowhere in the book of Job does it say that God did this so that Job could get something out of it. When we get to the end of the story, and when we get to God speaking at the end of the story of Job, what do we get? We get nothing more than God saying, I am God, and I deserve to be worshipped. I am God, and I get to call the shots. I am God, and I am the creator. I am the one that deserves surrender. And I deserve surrender and love no matter whether I do things for you or not. I'm God. And the fact that he has already rescued us from dying in our sin, the fact that he's already given us a chance to be forgiven and to be in a proper relationship with him and with others, and a chance to be with him for all of eternity, as if that isn't enough already. And yet we can still come to him and say, What am I going to get out of this? What's in it for me? If it's all about the miracles. Once the darkness and the struggles and the disappointments and the cross comes. Once the buzz wears off. Once the excitement goes away like Jesus' disciples when Jesus went to the cross, we will no longer be around. We run away, we scatter, we hide. We're no longer found faithful. We read here that when the governor found out Jesus healed his son, It ends by saying he and his entire household believed. One day we'll find out what kind of belief that was. I hope that it was a belief that went beyond just uh, what do I get out of it. I hope it was a belief that went beyond that to a mature type of faith. That believes no matter what. Because for every one of these guys whose son gets miraculously healed by Jesus, there are thousands upon thousands of faithful Christian people whose sons do not get healed by Jesus. In fact, stories like this are the exception, not the rule. On December 13th, 1544, Martin Luther wrote the following letter to a man by the name of George Horsell, after George lost his son. And Martin Luther wrote, I am saddened by the news that your dear son Jerome departed this life. I too am a father. And I have lived to see several of my own children die. I know how painful this is. God wishes us to love our children and to mourn when they are taken from us. But our sorrow should not be too severe for our faith in Jesus Christ And I would add, because Luther would have no problem with me adding it, our faith in Jesus Christ alone should be our comfort. May the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ help to comfort and strengthen you now and forevermore. None of Martin Luther's sons were ever miraculously healed by Jesus. George Horsell's son, Jerome, was never miraculously healed by Jesus. And yet, even with the loss of their children, he and his entire household still believed. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today. We are grateful and we are thankful for all the wonderful things you've done for us. Even just giving us life and breath for saving us from the depravity of our sins so that we could be in relationship with you. For desiring to be a God who can know us. And Lord, we pray that you will give us hearts that are faithful to you. Not hearts that are faithful to you with conditions attached. But Lord, that we will grow and that we will mature as Christians. So that even like those three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could say when they were thrown into that fiery furnace that yes, we believe in miracles. We believe that God can save us from the fiery furnace. But they also said but even if he does not, we will not serve false gods, but we will still follow the true God. Lord, may we be a people who believe in you and believe in the power of what you can do, but also, Lord, who submit to your sovereignty, who are able to say, but even if you do not do or grant our wishes… We will still serve you. We will still believe in you. We and our entire household will follow Jesus, not only in health, but even in sickness. We are yours unconditionally.